1: This is unityonlineradio.org, the
0: voice of an awakening world.
2: Eat better, get healthy, and help animals.
0: Welcome to Main Street Vegan with your host, Victoria Moran.
1: When there is something wonderful out there that you really, really want to do, isn't it awful when you're told, oh no, you're the wrong gender identity, or you live in the wrong neighborhood, or you're too something. You're too old, you're too young, you're too large, you're too small. In my book, Creating a Charmed Life, I have an essay called Retire Your Tutu. They're just not becoming at a certain point, because very often those two twos don't have to hold us back from anything. And in our first segment today, we are going to be talking about how to let no limitation, actual or imposed, get in your way of doing just about anything, certainly not something healing, uplifting and spiritually magical yoga. Hi everybody. I'm Victoria Moran, host of the Main Street Vegan Program. And you may be listening on Apple or Spotify or watching on the Victoria Moran NYC channel of YouTube. But I do want to remind everybody that for all the, oh my gosh, 470 something episodes of Main Street Vegan, we have been broadcast through, and still are, Unity Online Radio. And I invite you to check out all their wonderful, uplifting programming at unityonlineradio.org. So to get us started, after the break, we'll be talking with Karthik Sikhar, who wrote a book called After Meat. Woo, now that's a futuristic idea I can get behind. And right now, we're going to talk about something that we can access right now. And that is accessible yoga through the movement's founder, Javana Heyman. He is author of the best selling book, Accessible Yoga, and the brand new one, Yoga Revolution. And here's my favorite subtitle probably it's going to be for the whole year. (laughs) Certainly, it is so far building a practice. courage and compassion. Welcome, Giovanna.
3: Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. It
1: is wonderful to be here because you're one of my teachers. And Mm. in this wonderful uh, world of yoga, our teachers are always some of the most remarkable people that we meet along our paths. So thank you so much for the course I took from you in Mm. recent months. And anybody interested in all that, check out AccessibleYoga.org and you can take some classes too. So, Giovanna, tell us your story. I know you kind of go back away and there's a little bit of pre-story.
3: Yeah, well, how much time do we have? It's a long story. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, basically, to simplify it, I'd say that I was an AIDS activist back in the late 80s and 90s. Um, As a queer man, you know, my community was devastated by AIDS which, you know, we can relate to these days. We're in a pandemic again. But AIDS was a really devastating time. And I basically found yoga, um, which really helped me. And I started teaching yoga so I could share it with my community of people with HIV and AIDS. And and then that work just expanded. And I kept teaching yoga to people with disabilities um, and tried to work at finding ways to support teachers who were really working outside of mainstream yoga, who were interested in making yoga accessible. Um, So that's the short version.
1: Uh, That's a wonderful version. When I found yoga at 17, when it was very unusual, and then I found a yoga teacher, I moved to London, and I was really young and had that wonderful flexibility that you have then, but Mm. I was also overweight. And at that time, there was a huge stigma to being overweight. And so the accessibility of yoga was the first thing that I found. They mm-hmm. let me in. They let me do it. <laughs> they didn't say you're too. So tell me how you went from just doing yoga to founding this incredible system to make yoga accessible for everybody.
3: I mean, I think my activism was really key. I think that um, my age activism really got me excited about community organizing. And I saw that in the yoga community, there was really, there was like, it was almost like there were two worlds. There was the commercial yoga world happening in yoga studios, which was just really was starting in the nineties in the West, in the US. And there were so many people like me that were teaching outside of that. You know, I was teaching in hospitals and community centers. And I was interested in that. I was interested in bringing yoga to people who didn't feel welcome in mainstream yoga. And So I kind of brought the community together through conferences. We had accessible yoga conferences in person and through social media and through my books. I've just been trying to connect um, people who are working to kind of change our perspective on what yoga is. We think of it as such a physical practice, but really it's a spiritual practice for everyone. And I think that's an important thing to understand.
1: And I'm glad you were welcome
3: in. Yeah, I'm glad you were welcome to those classes.
1: Well, you know, it was a very long time ago. It was before yoga was cool. And so um, my teacher, I'm still in touch with her, Stella Chirpa. Mm -hmm. She's 94 years old. She still teaches one class a week at a senior center, which is so cool because everybody's younger than she is. And so it was almost like, if you found us, you're one of us. And now there seems to be a lot of... um, you know spandex and and other things that have kind of gotten in
3: yeah well actually before the story i told you i i did learn yoga from my grandmother when i was a young child she was um she was like a early hippie you know (laughs) she was studying yoga in the six early 60s i would say in california she lived in la and and was really um dedicated to her practice. She would practice every morning and she lived with us for a while. And, you know, it was just so exciting for me. She would let me practice with her and she would teach me stuff. And and so that was my first image of yoga was an older woman. uh, And she kept practicing through her eighties.
1: Wow. That's so cool. Yeah. So I, I know we want to talk about this incredible new book, but I just have one more question about accessible yoga, just so people know what we're talking about. It's not just accessible for people with physical difficulties in doing a standard very acrobatic yoga class there's a lot more to it so give yeah. us give us this realm of accessibility yeah.
3: well i think i think i would say it the other way that yoga is a universal you know these are universal teachings and they're available to everybody if you find a way in and what frustrates me is that a lot of the ways that yoga is taught in the west in particular is very limited and very specific to certain body types like very you know it's focused on athleticism or flexibility and i would say to make people welcome in yoga we have to consider all the obstacles which could include um, racism it could include um, financial obstacles it could include things like um, gender identification you know do you feel welcome as a trans person Or as a queer person, do you feel welcome as a fat person, as an older person? Like who who is being left out? And I think that's really the the work of our organization is to really address that. Like who is being left out, why, and how can we um, bring more awareness to that and try to remove those obstacles?
1: And how can someone who has felt left out find some yoga that they can access
3: well you know the amazing thing about uh, the pandemic is that a lot of yoga has moved online and so that's made it in a way more accessible so if you have access to the internet um, you could find teachers that you can relate to more easily I think these days you don't have to depend on the local yoga studio you can do a google search and search for yoga for blank you know yoga for anything And you can find communities out there and accessible yoga is a great place to start. We have amazing community of people. Um, We have a Facebook group. I I love to send people there because it's a free resource. It's called accessible yoga community on Facebook. We have over 11,000 members all over the world who are interested in making yoga accessible. And you can always go there and say, you know, does anyone know about yoga for blank thing, whatever it is, you know, like, because I, if you have multiple sclerosis, or you have um, heart disease, or you're a person of color, and you want to find a community that's welcoming to you, I think you can go there and find them. So I hope that's helpful.
1: Oh, that is helpful and and exciting. I, I love that we can just uh, push a few keys and uh-huh. open up amazing doors so you told us a lot about that in your earlier book and now we have yoga revolution building a practice of courage and compassion so talk to us about revolutionary yoga yeah
3: well um yoga is revolutionary that's what i mean to say actually it's not it's not exactly what people think it is you know that yoga is a spiritual practice that really begins with the idea that we have what we need inside and So kind of contradictory to the way we think in the West, yoga starts with this idea of wholeness, of wholeness, and that what we need to do is go back to that and remember that our true nature is fine, that we have joy inside of us, you know, and the practices of yoga are all about what's going to bring you back to that experience That's different than what we normally think. And in the West, generally we're trained that we have to achieve something or get something to be happy and to find joy. Like you have to get the certain job, right? Or you have to make a lot of money or have the right relationship. And that's not how yoga works. And so I think it's a revolutionary idea to think that we have what we need inside and that our task is to uncover that truth within us. So that's kind of the heart of the teachings and what I was trying to share in the book yoga revolution is that that yoga begins with this what i consider a revolutionary idea that we are full already
1: (laughs) no that's that's a beautiful idea and a a beautiful idea on which to build a life so i think a lot of people are scratching their heads and thinking Uh but it's exercises so tell us about yoga philosophy and how we can access that
3: yeah I know it's true that most people think of yoga as physical exercise or practice and it's kind of paradoxical because on one in one way the physical practices of yoga make it very accessible because it feels very um like concrete it's something i can do right like i can move my body into this certain shape um but this is an ancient spiritual tradition and the physical practices are really used for a larger purpose, and that is to connect within. And so what we do in yoga is we have kind of a system where you have physical practices, you have breathing practices, meditation, you have ethical teachings and more philosophy, and all those practices, and there's more. We have service, karma yoga, you have devotional practices. All these practices are used to, like I said, to bring your awareness back in touch with yourself. And I think, Asana, physical practices are great at that. So I love it. I love the physical part of yoga and I'm not saying anything wrong with it. I just think we need to keep that in context, right? That it's not so much about getting a perfect body or whatever it is that we think in the West, right? It's actually being used with a different intention in yoga.
1: And what is the connection? I know that a lot of people who listen to this program have read a lot of spiritual books and you read, Mm-hmm. Um, the yoga sutras of Patanjali, and other than having an easy, relaxed position, uh-huh. there's no downward dog. So, yeah. where did all that come in?
3: Yeah, I mean, yoga is a very interesting tradition because it's so diverse. I think that's what is hard to understand because often in the West, the traditions seem to have more of like a straight line. Yoga is not a straight line. There are many, many different traditions within yoga. It is very diverse. And I think that's exciting. I think you can pick and choose which parts are most effective for you. But I feel like we need to do so in a respectful way respecting this indigenous tradition that is thousands of years old. And if you look at, like you said, the yoga sutras of Patanjali or the Bhagavad Gita, which are considered those two sources are considered the two main sources for yoga philosophy. You're right. You don't see the physical practices there, hardly at all. Um, And they came around later. There was some kind of, I wouldn't, not as early as those, but that just after that, there were some yoga practitioners who were really interested in mastering their bodies. And that's the direction they went in. And so those practices really grew and grew into what we see now. Uh, Other traditions are still alive and you'll find them in India, but it's just not necessarily what's popular in the West in the name of yoga, you know what I mean? Yes,
1: yes. Well, what I wanna see get really popular in the name of yoga is the practice of courage and compassion. So Uh let's talk about both of these words. Talk first about courage.
3: Yeah, to me, courage has a lot of beautiful meanings. What I'm particularly talking about here is the courage to look inside, to be brave enough to reflect on what's going on in our own minds and what is the relationship between our mind and our heart. And I think that takes a lot of courage. And actually courage comes from the word cur, which means heart in French, you know, I think there's that root in Latin too. So courage to me is that courage to be like brave enough to really reflect on yourself and make that inner, inner journey that yoga demands. And it's hard. The hardest thing I think about yoga is being quiet, right? Often my teacher uh, and many teachers say this, that Shavasana, the relaxation pose is the most advanced yoga pose. That's the hardest pose for us because our minds are so busy. And I, I'm, my mind's incredibly busy and complex and I'm trying to embrace that, but in a way I'm really trying to be clear about my relationship with my mind and the way I talk to myself, to be honest with myself um, and to begin to get in more of an alignment so that my heart and my mind and my spirit are working together towards my life purpose. That's what I'm talking about with courage. So I don't know if that makes sense. I hope so.
1: Well, I'm gonna to listen to it more than once okay. and uh, maybe meditate a little bit on what you said now, compassion that's just our favorite word here at the main Street vegan program, ahimsa uh, compassion. Um, I think everybody listening is resonating with that. So what's your take on it?
3: Yeah, I have to say, I'm vegan too, and i don't I don't talk about it much publicly because I just feel like. I like to talk about these bigger ideas, you know, but I think uh, veganism fits right in with Ahimsa, right? With this idea of non-harm. And I think it's a great example of the ways that we can bring yoga to life. And I think that's, that's the other part of this book is looking at, you know, taking yoga outside of our personal experience. How does it, well, let me say this. If you do a spiritual practice and it changes you inside, how does that impact your actions in the world? That's really the question to me that I'm trying to answer in this book. How does the inner practice impact your outer action? And I think it has to, I think a spiritual practice literally is only effective if it changes the way you move in the world. And I think compassion is a beautiful word for what it looks like to find love and connection within yourself, and then to act in the world in the name of love in the name of compassion. And it, and it looks different for each person, right? Like everyone has a different path. But I think if each of us looked at how we could cause less harm in the world, I think there'd be a lot of good happening if that was all we did. Just cause less harm, right?
1: So how do you bring courage and compassion into your professional life? I know that uh, accessible yoga is, is an ORG or nonprofit. But it's still like a business, you know, you people need to know about you and some people might not be able to, I don't know, access one of the classes and they need help. And it just seems like maybe one of the hardest places to Mm -hmm. practice these principles Mm -hmm. is at work, especially when you work for yourself. Can you help us a little with that?
3: Yeah, I I think it's business is great. I don't have any problem with money or business or any of that stuff. I think it has to do with your approach and your attitude. I think if we look at the yoga teachings, it's very clear that the, the goal of the practice is to connect inward and what the obstacle to that is ego, the identification with yourself as a separate being as if we exist separate from others. So for me, taking my practice into my business life and into my family life and into my community means that I think of compassion, that I try to approach things not so much in a selfish way, but thinking of the good of others, which could be like making money so I have food for my family and housing for my family. I mean, I have to care for them, right? That's my job. Caring for my community. Am I doing a service through this business? Am I offering something that is actually of use to the, to other people in the world. Right. As long as I feel that there's some connection in the work, then I feel very motivated and energized to be productive and to make a very, you know, I don't know, very productive business actually.
1: Ah, Beautiful. So you have a lovely book here, as we've said, and as one author to another, I know there's always something in a book that's like, Oh, I love that part. So what are you most excited about uh, in Yoga Revolution?
3: That's that's a great question. Thank you. I think I'm most excited about something I called Rainbow Mind. There's a section, I think, let's see, it's chapter five, you know, where I talk about that. And what it means to me is that I, you know, traditionally in yoga, we're we're trained that the goal is enlightenment. And enlightenment is often held up as this very, unattainable goal that monks find meditating in caves for years or whatever. It's a very like, you know what I mean? It's very distant and external thing, like it doesn't feel like something we can actually achieve. And I've been really thinking about that a lot and thinking about how we can live yoga fully. And so what I try to explain or what I tried to share is that I feel that to me a form of enlightenment is to be completely loving and connected. And that I call that rainbow mind, which is a mind that is totally accepting of others and not focused on itself so much. Um, so I'm excited about that idea.
1: I love that. Somebody sent me a surprise gift of the book Auntie Mame. I don't know if you've run into that. But the the movie, the 1958 Rosalind Russell movie, is like my favorite movie of all time. Oh. And I was describing Mame, and said that she was so accepting and so inclusive. So for people who don't know this, she's a fictional character, but she's real to me, and and flamboyant and full of style and but accepting of everybody. And at the very end, she goes to India and you know, finds a guru. So wow. I, I just think that whole idea of, of the rainbow mind, I just love that when, cause you don't know who your teachers are. And if you're saying, no, no, you can't come in, you might miss something really good.
3: Right. I mean, everyone is our teacher. You know, I know like I have older children, while well, they're 20 and 16, they've taught me a lot. <laughs> You know, everyone, my husband, my family, my friends, my community, I'm learning all the time. And I don't think it's about letting people walk all over you, but it's about trying to be um, truly open-minded, you know, where it's not simply like, what can I get out of this situation? You know, how can I learn from the situation and give something and connect like that? That to me is what it means to be a yoga practitioner.
1: Mm -hmm. Wow they should put that on the door at the Lululemon. So Giovanna, as our time is kind of winding down here, it went so yes. quickly. Just tell us about your day. What, what does a family man, a businessman, a spiritual man do oh. from morning to evening?
3: Oh, wow. That's a great question. Well, you know what might surprise people is that I I don't I used to try to get up really early to do my practice. I would do yoga and meditation in the morning, but I, had, I have children and so raising them, it was too hard to practice in the morning. So what I changed my schedule now is I do a practice in the afternoon. And so these days I spend time, I take a few hours in the late afternoon, which tends, tends to be a downtime anyway. And I spend time doing my yoga, my meditation, doing some kind of exercise and it's a really great time for myself. And so that's really become, a way for me to ground and find self-care in the midst of my busy life. So.
1: And if somebody made a resolution earlier this month that this year they're going to start doing yoga, what would you tell them?
3: I think that's great. and I think you can find a lot of free and low-cost resources. You can go on YouTube. There's a lot of free videos there. Just be careful that you find something that's safe. You know, or find a yoga teacher or therapist that you really can uh, work with to find a safe practice. I always recommend chair yoga. I love chair yoga. as a great place to start. Also, I'd say don't do too much. You can do literally five minutes a day or 15 minutes a day is a great practice. I often give the guidelines to, to focus on the subtle practice as well. And that means don't just move the body, but focus on your breath and on relaxing. And so I often give a five, 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 practice idea to people which is five minutes of movement five minutes of conscious breathing and five minutes of relaxation and if you can do that that's 15 minutes every day that can really build a great and useful personal practice
1: that's beautiful and that is such a discipline for westerners that's like no no i I, have 14 minutes of movement and 30 seconds each of those other things
3: i know that's hard it's true
1: well, it will get a lot easier, everybody, after you read Yoga Revolution, Building a Practice of Courage and Compassion. And I also just want to once again tell you where you can find Jivana and his wonderful work in addition to the book. That is accessibleyoga.org. And he is also on Instagram uh, with his actual name, Jivana, J-I-V-A-N-A, Heyman, H-E-Y-M-A-N. And I know you're driving your kids to school i hope they're back in school uh, <laughs> didn't get that but we're going to put it on the show notes at mainstreetvegan.net or you know what mr google is so kind you just put in accessible yoga and guess who you're going to find Javana Heyman, author of yoga revolution building a practice of courage and compassion thank you so much Javana.
3: thank you victoria thanks for having me
1: And just in our last few seconds, just shout out your favorite vegan food.
3: Oh, my God. There are too many. Everything I eat. (laughs) I like to make granola. How about that? I like to make my own granola.
1: Ah, now that harkens back to some history. (laughs) (laughs) Very good. I love the idea of kind of what granola did for the culture. It was almost like there was before brown rice and granola and after (laughs) and for All the things everybody's struggling with now for everything happening in the world, it's better post brown rice and granola. Uh, So, Javana Heyman, Accessible Yoga. Thanks, everybody, and stay with us because after the break, we're going to see what the world will look like after meat.
0: Learn more today at eomega.org slash thrive. You're listening to
1: UnityOnlineRadio.org, the voice of an awakening world.
2: Welcome back to Main Street Vegan with your host, Victoria Moran.
1: Welcome back to this episode of the Main Street Vegan Program. A couple of announcements before we proceed. First, I want to do a shout out to our wonderful sponsor, Compliment, And this is a terrific supplement company. These supplements are designed for vegans, by vegans. And we've got some great uh, dietitians, medical doctors, Matt Frazier, the no meat athlete is part of that. So if you want to check out what they have, supplements designed for the way you eat, go to lovecompliment.com. And where it says discount code, if you decide to buy something, you can just put Main Street in all capital letters and you'll save yourself some money. I take one of the formulations, compliment plus every single day, and it seems to be working for me. I will really like it too. Then the other announcement is something that I have been doing. I started kind of midway in January. You know, sometimes these things that we want to start January 1st don't start till a little bit later. That's fine. So every afternoon, 4.30 Eastern time, I go on Instagram and do a live in which I read from this book. And I know you're probably gonna see it backwards if I hold it up for people watching on YouTube, but better backwards than not at all. It's called Younger by the Day. And this book I wrote, oh my goodness, way back in 2004. But it's a day book and every day has a little reading. And what is cool about doing it now is that there's, you know quite a few years in between when I wrote this and now. And since we're talking about growing younger, You kind of get to hear from my middle-aged self and my older-aged self, and then I get to hear from you, and there's a lot of interaction and a lot of wonderful exchanges, so I do hope that you will want to be part of that. My Instagram is at Victoria Moran Author, and if you want to join us live, um, 4.30 Eastern, whatever time that is where you are and what time it will be for My guest coming up is Pacific Time. He is out there in the wonderful East Bay area of California, such a terrific place. And speaking of terrific, he has written a book. I know I'm always telling you to buy books. This one is different. This one is not about the ethics or the health or the environmental impact of meat, as much as it is about the technology of how we're gonna get away from meat so that we can have the ethics and the environmentalism and the health that we're all looking for. So Kartik Shekhar has a doctorate in chemical engineering from Northwestern University. His research career has spanned many topics related to the future of food, such as bioreactors, quantitative biology, biochemical engineering and metabolism. I'm not sure I understand any of those. He currently works as a data scientist in the alternative food space in Berkeley and has written a nonfiction science technology book after meat. Welcome Kartik.
2: Hi Victoria, I'm happy to be here.
1: Oh, it's wonderful, wonderful to have you. So give us a little bit of background. I mean, did you grow up vegetarian? How did this become an area of interest?
2: Yeah, so I became vegetarian in college. So my mom's a lifelong vegetarian. And, you know, of course, she was very inspirational in my life. And in college, I sort of had the rationale that eating meat was bad for the environment. And then uh, I would say about 10 years later, someone pointed out that uh, in order to produce milk, a you know, a heifer or a female cow has to con- continually be pregnant. And uh, in order to be pregnant, you know, she often gives birth to a calf, which is effectively, you know, waste product to the dairy industry. And you know, that's where you know veal steaks come from. So once I internalized that notion, it, it just became very apparent that I had to go vegan. And so yeah, I decided to make a switch then.
1: Wow, that's cool. So You have a very technological background, you're an engineer and you've brought that in to what you do to promote a plant-based living and, and a vegan world. So how is your approach different from probably most of the people that I would talk
2: to on this program? Absolutely. So I think much of the vegan animal rights world has done a terrific job emphasizing the environmental and ethical problems associated with animal agriculture. And so I decided to take a separate angle, which is the technological angle, and basically argue that animals are actually one of the most ludicrous ways to produce large quantity of goods. So to you know, add, some, add, 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 add some more detail here, it takes a cow you know, about a year to grow you know, fully. The cow wastes about 90% of what she's fed, and she can't really be innovated upon that much better. And if you look at alternatives, you know something like you know, plant-based or microbial fermentation, you can get much more out compared to a cow. So to put this in perspective, a cow-sized bioreactor that's running microbial fermentation could replace about 10,000 cows. That,
1: that's pretty cool. And I saw a statistic that just last year, just what we have now in the beginning stages of all this innovation, Beyond Burger and Impossible alone saved some huge number of, of animals, which is stunning.
2: Yes, yes. I think uh, I read it was about a million animals uh, you know, be- between the two of them, which is which is amazing. And, you know, one, uh, you know, that also brings up another point, Victoria, and I'm glad you brought up uh, Impossible Foods and Beyond Meat. So they spent a lot of time trying to really reproduce that meat experience. And one thing that I argue in After Meat is that we'll actually be able to have a better gastronomical experience in this new animal-free meat world. So we'll actually be able to do better in terms of taste, nutrition, and cost. And it's actually going to be a win-win for everyone. And mm-hmm. we'd be we'd be, you know, shooting ourselves in the foot for not trying to get to this future sooner.
1: Absolutely. So I have a question based on the way that I eat and the way that a lot of people who listen to this podcast eat. We don't eat very much of the processed stuff. I mean, I can speak for myself. I, I do eat, drink the soy milk, oat milk in the carton because I'm too lazy to make my own. And my husband does like a Beyond Burger every now and then. But otherwise we ate vegetables, fruits, grains, beans, nuts, seeds. So two questions. One is why do people not want to do that? I mean, it's so good for you. And then the other question is, let's just imagine in the great hypothetical world that everybody wanted to eat that way. Are there enough vegetables in the world? Could we feed people on a whole food plant based diet, or is there also a kind of technology of supply, meaning that not only do people like these faux meats, et cetera, but we're going to need them?
2: Yeah, I'll start with your second question first, uh, just because I think it's easier to answer and transitions to the first question. Okay. So, yes, the short answer is absolutely. We could entirely feed the world with a with a whole food diet. So, one of my best friends, he actually has a paper where he calculated that if you took all the land that we reared animal agriculture on, you would only need about 10% of land to feed the same sort of nutrient composition, you know, using things like legumes, grains, and, and, uh, and et cetera, plant-based ingredients. So, and that's really to get the same amount of protein, macronutrients, so forth. Uh, And then, so more to the point about, you know, these processed faux meats. Uh, So I feel like I kind of bridge the two because I, I consider myself you know, half junk food, vegan, you know, I, I consider myself first and foremost an ethical vegan. And then and then I do have, you know, whole food uh, elements in much of my diet. And I don't necessarily see that these faux meats are, you know, quote unquote transition food. I think for a lot of people, you know, these, you know, this is what they crave, you know. So to put this in perspective, something like 36% of the world has fast food at least once a day. Mm -hmm. So, so this is a significant number and significant amount of, you know, animal suffering. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, to me, you know, of course, like we'd want them to eat a healthy whole food diet, but if we can get them to eat, you know, faux meat in place of, you know, animal meat, I think that's still, you know, a pretty big win.
1: Yes, I think so too. And so talk to me a little bit from your vantage point of why, why these animal foods have such a hold on people.
2: Yeah, I, so I think my friends would, you know, say something, you know, to the effect of, you know, just, just sort of taste, you know, it's also just been very normalized, you know, by, by, you know, culture and, you know, history. I think there's also a worry about nutrition, you know, so just getting enough protein. And then also, you know, it's, you know, quote unquote natural, which, you know, of course is, is very debatable.
1: Yeah, fascinating. So let's look at this world after meat. Give us a description.
2: Yeah, so I think what's really exciting about the world after meat is we don't know necessarily how it's going to play out. And you know, so one thing I, I really emphasize is that when we, when we make technological innovations, often the replacement is of a different design compared to its predecessor. So an example I like to give is horses. So for the longest period of human history, horses was the main way to move people, move objects across land. And uh, and it wasn't until we developed steam engines, engines in the 19th century, that uh, we were able to actually look at replacing horses as, uh, as a transportation technology. And what replaced horses wasn't an animatronic horse. It was... It was, uh, you know, a car. It was, it was motorcycles. It was things of very different design. And so, in my view, we have, you know, a similar sort of trajectory with food. So the, you know, future, especially of of, of the faux food world, I think is going to look, you know, you know, very foreign to to what we can kind of conceive of now. It might be, you know, steaks that are fashioned with uh, with uh, 3D printers or it might be you know, these, uh, these fungi stakes that get created in bioreactors and then get flown, to, flown into us uh, you know, by drones. Uh, but one thing I am very conclusive about is that animals have very little role in our you know, food production of the future just because they're so technologically deficient.
1: And can you explain that to us from a, a technological vantage point? I think that most of my listeners are certainly aware of the animal cruelty, aware of the land use and, and the tie-in with, with world hunger and the, the climate connection. but can you just give us an overall engineer's view of why this is just not going to work?
2: Absolutely. So ICAO, we use you know and we've speaking community, not you and me, uh, Victoria personally. <laughs> we use a cow as a bioreactor to produce you know, many goods such as dairy, meat, clothing, biologics, medicine, so forth.
1: And a defined bioreactor.
2: Yeah, in a bioreactor, it's, um, you know, it sounds like a very you know, alien concept, but all it is is something that uses biochemistry to transform an input to an output. So in the case of a cow, you know, it's transforming the food you know, to all these other goods that, uh, animal agriculture reaps. And, uh, and so for example, like a microbial bioreactor would be something like, um, like a beer fermentator where it's, where it's taking yeast or sorry, where it's taking sugar and yeast and the sugar coming from barley or wheat, and then transforming that into, you know, a fizzy alcoholic beverage. So, um, so I, I want to, you know, just, um, you know, hopefully, ease uh, the listeners. And you know, by the term bioreactor, there it's it's not anything uh, you know too intricate. And uh, yeah, so in classical chemical engineering, when we're looking at reactors or bioreactors, we have a variety of metrics that we can you know determine how well a bioreactor is performing. So some some very intuitive ones are yield. So that's uh, how much output do you get versus what you put in. And for cows, this is this is really Terrible. So about you know ninety five percent of what's fed to cows is, is quote unquote wasted. And then the another another useful metric is productivity or how fast a bioreactor can run. And uh, for cows, this is also terrible because cows take a long time to grow. And uh, this ultimately comes down or or why cows are so bad as bioreactors, is because of just their inherent physics and biology. So a cow has a very sophisticated circulation system and you know, she has to purvey nutrients around her entire body in, or, in order to run the circulation system, you know, she needs a beating heart and uh, you know, she needs to breathe. And so for all these functions, that's actually subtracting away from all these performance metrics. And you know, ultimately we can't actually improve on a cow. We actually just have to jettison the cow completely and turn to you know, plant-based or microbial fermentation.
1: So this fermentation that you talk about is that different from what people call lab-grown meat, where we get a little DNA from an animal?
2: Yes. Yeah, so lab lab-grown meat is a bit of a catch-all. So there's a couple of uh, a couple of different categories, subcategories to it. So one is this uh, in vitro meat or cultured meat, where we take a stem cell from a cow, and that stem cell can be put into a bioreactor and grown into you know a steak and You know, it's quote unquote a one to one replacement to a a, a cow steak. Uh, Another form of lab grown meat is microbial fermentation. So, corn, Q U O R N, Mm -hmm. is a great example of this, where it's actually not anything from an animal. It's actually a naturally occurring microbe that creates uh, what's called a mycelium, which is this very protein rich matrix. That can be formed into, you know, quote, you know, "quote unquote" uh, meat patties.
1: Uh-huh. I think that's the system that they use to make one of the foods I feed my dog, Wild Earth.
2: Yes, yes. Uh, Wild Earth uses uh, koji, uh, so koji oh, yeah. is also a microbial fermentation process.
1: Interesting. So, um, okay, so we're looking at this world. We've got all these different kinds of ways to get food that doesn't come from animals. What's that going to make? The world look like in terms of how life is for humans?
2: Yeah, so I think the good news is that there's just so many positive knock-on effects here. So, um, Victoria, you alluded to the environmental and ethical costs of animal agriculture, and that's partly explained by the technological issues. So because cows take, you know, such a long time to grow, you know, we've we've realized we can't actually improve on a cow-based uh, production process, and just have to, you know, monopolize much of the resources of planet Earth in order to do, you know, and in, uh, in order to do especially, uh, you know, cow agriculture. So something like a thirty, like thirty percent of the ice-free land on planet Earth is being used to feed animal agriculture. And if we had if cows grew twice as fast, we would actually need you know, probably about half of that land, you know, just to, just to see how all these things connect. So if we switch to something like plant-based or microbial fermentation, you know, those things are, you know, range from a hundred to 10,000 times faster. Mm. So think about how much land we actually free up. And then, you know, think about how much, you know, forest we can rewild, you know, how many trees we can, you know, put back on the planet earth, just draw back oxygen or draw back in CO2 and, you know, turn the tide against climate change. So, so that's the first point. We're, we're going to have a cleaner earth just by, you know, switching, to the, switching away from animal agriculture. And then two, I, I don't like to shy away from this point. I think the alternative food, you know, shies away too much from it. But, you know, we can't, you know, turn a blind eye to animal suffering. It's a huge problem. Uh, you know, I think, you know, the environmental calamity of uh, animal agriculture is, is pronounced. But the, to me, the, the suffering aspect of animal agriculture is, is just, you know, colossal. And, uh, and yeah, I think we'll instill better moral values in people as, you know, the shift occurs. I think it will become increasingly obvious and societally obvious that, you know, it's just wrong to treat animals in this way, you know, whether or not they're dogs or cows.
1: And you say something beautifully about that in your introduction, where you're talking about that this book is about technology and that's what you're going to focus on. But you also say something else that I just loved, and I'll bet I can find it. Okay, you say, "I suspect that once technology has allowed alternatives to outcompete animal products and/or replace them, we'll societally militate against animal products just as we once did against child labor and lead paint." I love that idea. Of course, I feel like having been vegan for, you know, 38 years that I've been trying to do this for a long time, but I also know that these innovative foods have done more than all of us working tirelessly since veganism has been a thing.
2: Absolutely. And and I think, you know, what I am really hoping for is a tipping point where, you know, it just becomes so obvious that this future is going to be a win-win in every single way. And, you know, it was one of the reasons I was really motivated to write after me, because I really do want people to see it's going to be a win-win in every single facet that we, that, you know, any consumer would care about. And, and uh, furthermore, you know, I was also kind of inspired by, you know, other, you know, technology companies when it comes to, comes to like clean energy and clean tech, you know, so for example, like Tesla. So, so Tesla is probably right now, you know, the coolest uh, car manufacturer on the planet. I think ask any 20 something male. (laughs) And, you know, they're probably going to answer that. And um, I I don't think they would actually say anything about, you know, the, you know, the clean energy or, you know, the fact that it's EV or, or anything like that. I think they would just say it's a really cool car. And I think that's where we're going to get to, you know, with the alternate food movement. It's just going to be, you know, transitioning from, uh, you know, from, um, I think I think I used the analogy of uh, coal technology to like solar, to to, to solar energy. Like mm-hmm. we're just, we're just going to want to do it.
1: And you had some other great stats in here about the percentage of millennials. What, can you pull that right out of your head? Of course you can. I can. Up. What's the percentage of millennials who are vegan or vegetarian?
2: yes the the percentage is around 25 who consider yes huge yes for people under the age of 30 or between i think it's 25 and 34 who considers themselves vegetarian or vegan yes well wow. and
1: i'll bet it's higher in the younger kids in the gen z's i wow.
2: think so too yeah
1: that is thrilling so I know that you are in the alternative food space. So you're around a lot of people and you agree on all this, you know, and I certainly agree with you to the degree that I understand the technology and otherwise I just have to trust you. But you probably know other techie people out there in California. I mean, what's the response to people who still eat meat? Do, Do they see like other ways to work around these problems? And, and, and if so, what, what are their points? What are their arguments?
2: Yeah, so, you know, I, I think we, we sometimes focus a little too much on the number of vegetarians and vegans. So, you know, a lot of my grad school friends actually read after meat who, you know, still eat meat. And I think they would say that they've drastically cut down the amount of meat that they consume and, you know, basically now, you know, only do it for... You know, special occasions such as you know weddings or or, or you know holidays, uh, and I have seen you know more receptivity you know to the idea that you know we can technologically innovate our well ourselves to a more exciting world of food, and you know a lot of cheerleading and you know a lot of openness to trying you know just new products when they come out, you know. So uh, I think like the KFC uh, plant-based chicken nuggets that came out in the past month have you know you know, are a great example, which, uh, you know, I'm, I'm seeing a lot of uh, chatter from my meat-eating friends about them too. Uh, And, you know, I recently impossible foods came out with some uh, vegan nuggets that I, that I really like. So, so, and as I understand it for most of the alternative foods, the biggest consumers are actually not vegans or vegetarians. It's actually the quote unquote flexitarians. So something like 95% of the sales for these alternative food products are actually going to these, uh, to these flexitarians.
1: Well, God bless them. <laughs> and let's hope they just keep moving on over. Uh, the book, everybody, is After Meat, The Case for an Amazing Meat-Free World by Kartik Shaker. PhD, I don't think we got your PhD in there earlier. So in our last couple of minutes, what, what do we do to help bring this into being? How can we live our lives each day to uh, create this world after meat?
2: Yes, so in my view, we have to get to that tipping point where, you know, it's just, you know, this future is just so obvious and we're just trying to get there as quickly as possible. And so trying to get as many people to see it and to be excited about it. And so uh, one way is I think just being able to reduce the animal agriculture subsidies. So, I think this makes it really, really hard to technologically innovate ourselves to these, to these new foods. So, right now, animal uh, agriculture subsidies make meat and animal products about 25 to 30% cheaper than they would be in a fair market. Uh, the second thing I would like to see is I would actually like to see just more governments, you know, just, just funding such efforts. So, right now, it's mostly just the private industry like Silicon Valley. You know, you, know, you know, just doing private funding to, you know, to do these uh, innovations. And that's not what we really want. We, we want um, you know, some of these innovations to be in the public domain. We want academic labs to be working on it. And, you know, in my view, clean food has the same magnitude of impact in terms of you know, benefit as clean energy. So if you think that governments should be spending billions of dollars on clean energy, then we should also be spending billions of dollars on, on clean food. And so I, I hope, uh, you know, I can inspire more advocacy on that end.
1: Yeah, that makes so much sense. I hadn't thought about it. You know, there's money going to do something good, but then there's money going that that negates, you know, what was just done. Very, very interesting. So everybody, the book, it's After Meat. You can get it on Amazon. You can get it wherever you buy books. The website is aftermeatbook.com. Com. And uh, you can find Kartik on LinkedIn. And I'll just put that info in the show notes at MainStreetVegan.net. And I want to do a couple of shout outs, one to our mutual friend Jill Fraser of Jill Milan fabulous luxury vegan handbags. You've got to check them out if you don't know them already. And also uh, Marla Rose and uh, the good people at Chicago Vegan Mania and Vegan Street for your fabulous vegan rock star t-shirt. So I don't know how you guys are listening today, but There is a new way to to get this podcast, and that is that you can actually watch it and see my guest and me on YouTube, and that would be my YouTube channel, Victoria Moran NYC. So thanks, everybody, for listening. Thanks to Unity Online Radio for coming up on 10 years of hosting the Main Street Vegan Program, and to each and every one of you, God bless. Eat your veggies and maybe some alternative meats to take good care.
0: Thank you for listening. This is Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world.